We are in Romans 11. We're going to finish Romans 11. The title of the sermon is The Mystery of Israel's Salvation. And this morning we're going to finish the study of Romans chapters 9 through 11 as a block or a portion of scripture in this epistle. I mentioned two weeks ago that this morning we would be putting on our horticulture hats and that means we'd be studying trees and that's what we're going to do. Up to this point in our study, we have learned that Israel rejected the gospel message, obviously. They rejected Jesus the Messiah. As a result, God hardened them. But despite this, Paul argues that Israel has not gone permanently awry, right? As a matter of fact, Paul says that this is all part of God's predetermined and overarching plan, and that's he says that actually in Romans 11, verses 11 through 16. It's part of God's plan, Paul says, to provoke Israel to jealousy and then ultimately to salvation after they see the Gentiles come into the body of Christ. And it's in verse 16, if you want to look in your Bibles as I rattle these verses off, it's in verse 16 that we see this plan of our Lord's begin to culminate into an evidenced reality. It is here that this transition is first exemplified by Paul's illustration of an olive tree. And that would be verses 16 through 24 of chapter 11, which Pastor Steve just read. This is not... Not the first time, uh, or I should say the first or only time God uses an illustration of an olive tree to describe his dealings with Israel. He uses the olive tree in Jeremiah 11 to describe his judgment upon Israel, and then he uses the olive tree in Hosea in the context of restoration and salvation for Israel. And yet again, as you have heard the pastors in this church say many times from this pulpit, we see God's beautiful plan for his people woven in and throughout the entirety of Scripture over a 4,500 to 5,000-year period as it is revealed In 66 books, we were talking about this at the men's breakfast yesterday, 66 books found on four different continents written by 40 different authors of every different walk of life, various backgrounds. And what do we find? We find a plan that no human being could possibly create or come up with or entirely pull off. But our God indeed does do that, and he shows that redemptive plan in those 66 books that are bound together in a canon that we call the Bible. And the Apostle Paul captures this 
almost incomprehensible sovereignty of God over the affairs and destiny of his people in a very God-glorifying and beautiful way. Paul is telling us here in Romans that God has removed many Jewish branches from the olive tree and grafted Gentile branches in their stead. And you've heard me quote him before in this series, one of the commentaries that I'm, I'm looking at in preparing these messages, theologian Thomas Schreiner, he explains it this way. He says, and I quote, God makes sure the Gentiles do not fall prey to pride even though they have been included in and many Jews have been excluded from the people of God, end quote. And we must never... I'm I'm sorry, we must ever be mindful of this fact that the Gentiles remain part of the olive tree because of their faith. And if they abandon their faith, they will be cut off just like the Jews. Also, in addition, we must remember that the Jews who exercise faith will be grafted back into the olive tree. I'm going to say that again because it's very important. We must remember that the Jews who exercise faith, not depend on their Jewish ethnic lineage, but the Jews that exercise faith will be grafted back into the olive tree, saving faith. For if God takes wild olive branches, Gentiles, and grafts them into his olive tree, he can surely graft the original branches, the Jews, back into the olive tree again, providing that they have faith in the promise, the child of the promise, the Messiah. So Paul informs his readers that this is precisely what God has planned to do all along. And he says this in Romans eleven twenty-five through 32. Beginning in verse 25, Paul says, if you want to follow along with me, lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. And just as a reminder If you remember two weeks ago, I went to great and probably annoying lengths to show you how and why the phrase all Israel here includes both Jews and Gentiles. It is the Israel of God, right? The household of faith, the true heirs of the promise, the body of Christ. But today I ask you, Why? Why does God go through all this trouble? What is the point? Well, for starters, it's no trouble for him at all because he's God. We're speaking in human terms. He does it so that he can show his mercy and his saving grace 
to both Jews and Gentiles. I don't know if you remember, but the very first sermon that I preached on this book, I said, this book's all about Jews and Gentiles. He consigned both to disobedience by allowing them to wallow in their obstinance for a season. Then he shows mercy to both in a predetermined and astonishing way so that he may, and this is what it's all about, display his glory for all to see. And you've heard me say this a million times. This is what this whole Christian gig is about. God's glory. This is why he did it. Created devil he knew would fall, created the earth, created man, and prepared his son before the foundations of the world to die for his elect. The Bible is very clear. He did all this for one reason and one reason only, his glory. He didn't need you. He does not need you now. He was happy, the Trinity, communicating with each other throughout eternity's past. This is all for his glory. Now, if you go back to Romans 9, if you would please, we'll start in uh, Romans 9, verse uh, 22. I just want to show you some things here. We've looked at some of these things before, but I didn't put as much of an accent on them as I am now. Beginning in verse 22, Paul says, What if God, remember, just talked about God choosing Jacob over Esau. He says, what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Verse 23. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon the vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. Now think about this for a minute. When I read this, I think, okay, riches of his glory. What are riches? You know, most of the time we think of riches as, you know, a bunch of greenback, a bunch of money. But I was watching a documentary one time recently where they followed these guys around who go down to the bottom of the sea and look for treasure from sunken ships that sunk 100 years ago, 200 years ago. And when they get the treasure, when they find the treasure, you're talking everything from every gem known to man, known to man, I'm sorry, and, you know, gold and silver. And that gold and silver is exhibited in many different Things, chalices, plates, bowls, and whatnot. So when I think of this, I think, okay, riches of his glory. The, the best thing I can think of on this stinking earth is that, a treasure chest full of treasures. But that pales in comparison to what we're talking about here. The riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy. We're the vessels of mercy, right? Which he prepared beforehand for what? Glory. Even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. And he says also in Hosea, 
This is Hosea 2.23. I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved, and it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called the sons of the living God. Then he quotes Isaiah uh, 10.22 in verse 27. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved, for the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. So here we have this God that raises up vessels of wrath like Pharaoh just so he can knock them down to demonstrate his glory to us, his vessels of mercy. Then, same God, he says, your descendants are going to be like the sand of the seashore. However, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, God didn't say, I'm going to save every one of them, each grain of sand. That's not what he says. He says there's going to be a remnant. Remember when we studied the word remnant, the word remnant, it meant small. Small remnant will be saved. And again, that remnant consists of Jews and Gentiles, which is the whole point. That's why Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, quotes Hosea 2.23. I will call those who weren't my people my people. He's talking about the Gentiles. And so you see, Hosea, Isaiah, Paul, all concur, Old Testament, New Testament, that this remnant spoken of in Romans chapter 11 is not just Jews, it's Gentiles and Jews, like we've been seeing all along. And when I say all along, I mean throughout the entire Bible. This is a miraculous thing to pull off, church. This is God glorifying. That's my point. It's all for his glory. This is God glorifying. Only God can do this. I pointed out several sermons ago. It bears repeating. Think of how many decisions, how many decisions of men and of women had to have been predetermined by God in order for him to pull this off. We can go all the way back to Genesis, first prophecy of Christ, Genesis 3.15, up through two lineages that came from the life of Abraham, child of the promise, Isaac, typifying Christ, carrying that salvific plan further down the line to Jacob, and so on and so forth, and what could go on and on and on, systematically throughout the entire Old Testament, throughout the entire New Testament, he planned all of this from the beginning. He's been executing it this entire time and he is still executing it now because Christ has not returned yet. And nothing thwarts his plans. Job 42 to Isaiah 14, 27. For those of you that have been saved for a while, you have seen, I don't have to tell you, you've seen God's hand in your life and you could probably give countless examples of how the Lord has done things like this in your life. 
And you can look back now, I call them God's bookmarks. You can look back now and you could see. At the time, you didn't know why God was doing it. At the time, you didn't like it. In fact, you may have hated it. But now, you see God's glory in it, don't you? It's undeniable. He does not, folks, intervene in your life as if to sit on the sidelines for a time and then sporadically insert himself into your affairs to make things go the way he wants them to go or to save you from yourself, as so many preachers like to say. No, that's not what he does. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says he predetermines all of it. The psalmist says he's in the driver's seat and you're in the back seat. Some of us are in the trunk. He steers the vehicle because he knows where to take you because he has plotted your course. And he did so before you were born. He determined the way and he knows the direction and he makes GPS look like child's play. And he does it not only for his glory, but because he loves you. And it's because he loves you that he has appointed you unto salvation. Acts 13, 48. We've looked at these scriptures before in here. But for those of you who are new to the faith or new to the doctrines of grace, you need to hear them. And you need to underscore them in your Bible. Just a couple. Psalm 139, verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. Blob of fetal tissue. I'm being sarcastic. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written down every one of them. What? David, the days that were formed for me before one of them came to be. He's got every day mapped out. And then there's Galatians 1.15 where Paul says, God set him apart before he was born and called him by his grace. God set you apart before you were born. And he calls you by his grace to believe in his son, Jesus Christ, as the atoning sacrifice for your sins, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. doesn't matter. It's good for us to remind ourselves of how good God is and has been to us and how his hand has been upon us every day in our lives. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Paul tells us that we were not only called by God before the foundation of the world, but he also tells us what we are called to. What are we called to? We are called to be holy and blameless before him. 
do you live a holy and blameless life? I will leave you to ponder that question today for our next time, next week, when we will finally move on, I promise, from the phrase Jew and Gentile. You'll hear it less and less as we go through the rest of the book, and we'll start talking about the marks of a true Christian life, holiness, blamelessness, a holy life, as we go into Romans 12. And warning Will Robinson, Paul is going to step on your toes. And if you get the Will Robinson expression and understand it, you're old. (laughs) You're old. And if you don't, you're young. Moving on. Please remember what we learned two weeks ago. We saw that Paul does not have in mind here the salvation of an ethnic Israel. And I'm saying that often because there are so many, I would venture to say the majority of celebrity pastors, popular radio, TV pastors, believe that all of the ethnic Jewish Israel will be saved. Anyway, it is paramount for us to remember this um, because Jews in Romans eleven twenty four being grafted back into their olive tree um, has to happen, Paul says. I should say, it can't happen apart from faith. Doesn't matter what their ethnicity is. Can't happen apart from faith. How do we know that? We know that because if you look specifically, Paul says in verse 23 that they will only be grafted back in if they do not remain in unbelief. He's talking about unbelief in Christ. That's verse 23, as I said in Romans 11. Faith or belief is how the Gentiles become grafted in, and it is how the Jews will be grafted back in. The Jews were originally cut off because Mm -hmm. of their unbelief, and so conversely, they'll only be grafted back, uh, back in because of their belief in the child of the promise. God has not abandoned his people in this way. Many people will say, well, all ethnic Israel is going to be saved because the Bible says God's not going to abandon his people. But the context of his people is not Jew, it's Jew and Gentile. It's remnant. He is waiting for the, for the Jews' inclusion in that remnant that we talked about before. He's waiting for them to exercise faith in the Son so that he can graft them back into their olive tree. It was originally their olive tree. Verse 24 of Romans 11. And it's there that Paul says, by the way, for if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted 
contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? Now let's take a few minutes and look at this metaphor of the olive tree. Okay? In verses 11, I'm sorry, in chapter 11, verses 17 through 24, this metaphor reflects the ancient practice of invigorating an existing cultivated olive tree by grafting in branches from a wild olive tree. So you got an existing cultivated olive tree that's not doing too well. They invigorate it and make it produce more by grafting in branches from a wild olive tree that's not cultivated, not doing very well either. You with me so far? An olive tree grows... I didn't know this until I started studying it very slowly. It matures over a 30-year period. And it has to be a 30-year period of pruning and grafting that enables an olive tree to produce the fruit that is so desired. And this, this olive tree can live not only for centuries, but up to a thousand years. The cultured olive tree in this metaphor represents Israel, as I said. God's people, heirs of the promise, an olive tree nurtured by God throughout the whole Old Testament, many, many years. And the wild olive tree obviously represents who? The Gentiles, right? And now in verse 17 of chapter 11, if you look real quick at these verses, in verse 17 of chapter 11, we see that some branches were broken off i.e. they were hardened and fell off, verse 7. They committed trespasses, verse 11, and this led to their rejection, verse 15. It's all there. These verses describe reasons for the current failure of some, some Israelites to believe, but there's still hope that they will come to faith in the future. Just like there's hope that the Gentiles that we pray for and desire to come to Christ can come to Christ in the future. So they're cut off for a reason, and they are um, grafted back in if they have faith, and God, by his grace, miraculously brings these Gentiles into his church, the new Israel, as we said. Then, in verses 18 through 22, the Gentiles are warned not to be arrogant toward the branches or be overly confident or proud in their position, their new position, as if they were superior to the Jews. Because Paul says if they are, if they do become proud and if they do think they're superior to the Jews, Paul says God will cut them off too. Then in verse 20, Paul says, you Gentiles stand fast through faith. And that's the message that I have for you this morning. Stand fast through faith. Persevere. Persevere in faith. A reminder that only through the gift, the gift, the gift, 
not a work, the gift of faith. Does anyone become a member of God's clan, his people? So don't become proud, Paul says to the Gentiles, or as the Greek says here, don't think lofty thoughts. That's what it actually says. Don't think lofty thoughts. But instead, Paul says, fear, fear the severity of God toward those who have fallen. This is a reverential fear. We revere our God because of his power, majesty, glory and because it was a gift based on nothing that we did that put us here as Christians the result should be that as Christians we should live our entire lives in holy reverential fear and depend entirely have a mindset Understand, walk as if you understand that your entire Christian life depends upon God's grace. And it is God's grace that causes you to persevere to the end. That pea and tulip is there for a reason. We should never be so proud so as to say, I know that I will persevere to the end. Nobody's going to knock me off my game. I know I'll persevere. I've seen people who you never, ever would have thought would walk away from the Lord, turn their back and walk away and die without a relationship with God. So that's what Paul's talking about here. The meaning of all Israel in verse 26 refers to a church comprised of all of us, Jew and Gentile, saved by faith, and all that persevere to the end are those that are in God's grace. Now, Paul goes on to say that he wants us to understand, and this is the title of the sermon, the mystery of Israel's salvation. If you have the ESV, it'll be the title at the top of the paragraph. The Mystery of Israel's Salvation. In verse 25 of chapter 11, Paul says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now here, Paul's quoting Isaiah 59, 20. And what Paul means here is that Christ came from Zion, or from the Jews, the Jewish lineage, to the Gentiles. He will forgive the sins of the Jews, but only if they don't continue in unbelief. Like we saw a moment ago in verse 23. 
And as we've said multiple times in the past three sermons, Israel will be saved by faith, which would make them, what would it make them if they were saved by faith? Believers in the child of the promise. Look at Romans 9.8. There's the child of the promise, and there are the children of the flesh, which is the nation of Israel. Those are the two in this chapter that Paul is talking about. The children of the promise, the children of the flesh. These elect Jews and Gentiles are brothers and sisters together in Christ. And that should sink in for a minute, okay? We would no longer think of Jews as Jews if they come into the fold of Christ. We're all the same. Doesn't matter. So, the remnant is the Israel of God. That is the mystery of Israel's salvation. Right there. Paul says in verse 29, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. I've heard people yank this verse out of context and use it for everything under the sun. Okay? God's gift to Israel, as outlined in Romans 9, verses 4 and 5, remember, to them belong... This is what they had. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. No one can take those gifts away from them, but those gifts don't save them. No one can take their calling away from them. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That's what the verse means. But the truth remains, salvation is only offered through Jesus Christ. And in that, and in everything else, God remains faithful to his promises. And he remains faithful to us. Next week's going to be fun because we get to change complete direction. Let's pray.